What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Get ready, Ohio. FanDuel, America's number one sports book, is coming to the Buckeye State. And to kick things off, you can get started with $100 in free bets as an early sign-up bonus. Plus, when you sign up today with promo code OHIOFD, you'll be all set when FanDuel goes live in Ohio. Then you can bet on all your favorite teams in all your favorite sports with $100 in free bets. Just download FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Ohio, this is your chance to get in on the action. Join today with promo code OHIOFD. Make every moment more with FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NFL. 21 or older and present in Ohio. Bonus issued in non-withdrawable free bets that expire seven days after FanDuel accepts its first real money sports wager in Ohio, 1123. Unique user identity verification required. Offer ends on the go-live date. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of Film Study. This is Ken McCusick. We're here to have a crossover episode again today. Second straight and we're again joined by Rob Shields. Uh, Rob, thanks for joining us again. Thank you for having me. And he's at rshields97 on Twitter. Make sure you give him a follow. Some great thoughts. You're going to get a real sense of that in the next uh, uh, 30 to 60 minutes, I think. Uh, we're going to talk about rules changes today in baseball. And uh, it's a it's a big topic of this labor dispute uh, is what rules changes are okay. Uh, can you, first of all, maybe take a, take just a 
30 seconds, 40 seconds. Tell us, do the players always want something in exchange for any rules change or do they want certain rules changes of their own? I, I think they, they're willing to give up stuff to get what they want. I mean, that's, I mean, I think some of these rule changes you're, you're going to have, you know, like right now, Trevor Bauer is out there complaining about the, the shift stuff. Um, he doesn't like it, but he's also been one of the pitchers that has arguably been the most impacted in a positive way by the shift. And then you have guys like Joey Gallo who want it gone. So I think you're going to have people on both sides of the fence. The larger base thing is something I've never heard anybody complain about or say they're against. So I just think that that's just, you know, that I guess people are just like, well, whatever, who cares? What is the, what is um, the change there? I'm not even aware what it is. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to make the bases a little bit larger um, with the thought being that it can, that it's, it's uh, helpful for injuries, less collisions on the bases and things like that. That's the thought process. Interesting. Okay. So it's a 15 inch bases currently, I believe. Right. And they'd be going mm-hmm. to, what, what would they nah, do? I, I don't, I don't know that they've said, I can't remember that a, a number I've seen. I think they're just enlarging them um, okay. probably by a couple of inches or so, I think. Okay, does it change effectively the distance between bases, or will they move back second base a little bit? To not that it matters tremendously, but it will matter a little. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They haven't they haven't said from what I've seen. It's just it's just been enlarging the bases, and that's it. Okay. I mean, because in theory, if you enlarge them by two inches, it's now not ninety feet. You know, it's eighty nine feet. You know, you know ten inches or whatever. So yeah, so um, so I guess in theory there is, but I, I don't know that they've mentioned that at all. Okay, so some some of the things the players agreed on in terms of rules changes, and I think the players are actually fairly, um, from what I've seen, they haven't been really firm on anything. And, of course, the players' union represents both pitchers and hitters. They shouldn't really (laughs) have a strong uh, feeling about one way or the other, but maybe they do. The universal DH has always been something the players have kind of been for because it adds to elderly players' careers and the elderly players make up an important voting component of who's in the MLBPA. Mm-hmm. So we're going to see that. By the way, how long, how long do you think it's going to take for complaining about the DH to go away? My, my theory is once everybody who's dead currently who understands, <laughs> who's, who's lived their entire life under this, it'll be over, and it might not be much before that. I, I think – I mean, I think the National League fans, you know, again, they, they, they seem to believe that there's a lot more strategy involved with the pitcher hitting, which is obviously wrong. And I think that they're – I think once they see this in play, they'll, they'll just – I think they'll change relatively quickly. I mean, you know, who wants to go up there and watch a guy? I mean, he's I – mean, I mean, think about how bad Chris Davis was for the Orioles, and he would have been – he, his OPS was like a couple hundred points higher than the average pitcher. And yep. Chris Davis was like an automatic out every time he stepped up, it seemed like. And yet he still would have been easily one of the best hitting pitchers. So that's not, it, it, there, there's nothing about, I mean, it's, you know, it, it sucks for the people like a Zach Ranky or some of these guys that can really hit, but you know, whatever they're, they're so few and far between that. Who cares? Yeah, I, I I hope that that's uh, that's the way people will look at it. Um, it is one of these things, though. The National League and the notion that there's more strategy, and I'm using air quotes, uh, which you can probably detect anyway. That that in, in National League games, it's just ridiculous. Forced double switches aren't strategy. It, they're forced. You know, to to move the pitcher down nine slots in the batting order. You know, when you when you make a change and and uh, and bring in a new pitcher. 
uh, the, the, the forced pinch hitting in the National League. That's not strategy. That's, that's forced behavior. The, 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 you, you get more strategy when you have options in terms of how you can use your 25-man roster uh, you know, today. Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, the, the idea that, well, you know, your eighth place hitter is up, so you're going to, you're going to, you know, intentionally walk them to get to the pitcher. That's not a strategy. That's saying <laughs> you have a nobody trying to hit and they have no chance. Um, it, to me, it says it all when I, I can remember years ago when Chris Benson was an Oriole and he had a home run in a game. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can remember all the, all the Oriole fans, everybody got so excited because our pitcher hit a home run. To me, that tells you everything that you need to know when a pitcher gets a hit or even hits a home run or something like that. It's like, Oh my God. It's like the, the Bartolo Cologne home run when he was like over 40 is yeah. like one of the highlights of the last five to seven years. And it's really, I mean, it's funny because it's Bartolo Cologne, but the idea that we get so excited over them doing anything positive tells that that's all the information I need to know to know that it's, that it, it should never be happening to begin with. Right. Yeah, I, I would agree that, uh, that that's pretty clear evidence right there. Um, the trends in ballparks was something I wanted to talk about to start with this, because we, we've had an interesting run of ballpark changes. And the 66 to 74 ballparks that my generation grew up with that, you know, we were changing. There's a, there's, it's not every team that, that came in the league at that point to, to, that had a change ballpark, but St. Louis had one and they, you know, they built an AstroTurf cookie cutter stadium, as they called them. Kansas city got one also in the state of Missouri. So you have uh, both uh, Cincinnati and Cle- and not Cleveland and Pittsburgh got them I'm trying to think of who else was in the 66 to 74 group um, that represented, you know, the newer ballparks in the league when I was a kid. Uh, Anyway, those, those ballparks have turned out or did turn out to be pitchers parks. And we just had a a production meeting. We're talking about the only one that's remaining. We think is Kauffman stadium, which has been converted to grass now. Yeah. um, You know, you, you've got, there's only a few, there's only a few parks that are, that are, quote unquote old anymore. I mean, that, I mean, I mean, heck, Camden Yards is old now in a lot of ways, which is really funny to think about, but it really is. And, um, <clears throat> it's interesting that so many of those stadiums, you know, you think of Dodger stadium, you know, everybody thinks, you know, some of them are, are kind of trend on the hitter side, but it's slight, like Wrigley kind of goes back and forth, um, in terms of what they're, everybody always assumes it's like a big, pitcher i mean hitters park but it's not it hasn't always been that way i mean the biggest pitcher park that's been around forever is dodger state is chavez ravine i mean that sure. one has oh that's too. just that's just a great yeah and in oakland with you know it's just such an expansive uh foul territory especially it just mm-hmm. it just it's just very difficult to, to to hit in those parks and which is also why you see a team like the orioles who for the last several years have been built just to hit home runs and they go to oakland and they get their butts whooped. Now, it's not just because Oakland's a, a better team, of course, but I'm just saying it doesn't fit the style of the Orioles uh, sure. because you, you've got to hit you, – you, you, they can't manufacture runs. Um, so, I mean, even to an extent, Tampa, Tropicana Field is also like that. Um, it's, it's, it's more of a, a pitcher's park. Now, Tampa has become a homer team, but it's still, generally speaking, a good park to pitch in because it's, it's an expansive park and they've got their quirks and all that kind of stuff at that whatever you want to call it, you want to call it a stadium or whatever you want to call it down there. But mm-hmm. that those teams, they build their teams for their ballparks. 
Sure. And that's partially why they're very successful because not a lot of teams build their teams in that way because they don't play in parks like that. Right. I mean, it, it was definitely true growing up that, that stadiums like Baltimore, frankly, for that matter, had marginal players that they could go after. They had marginal traits they could look for in players. And the, the you know, one of the things Bill James pointed out was that the, the way that the outfield high concrete walls in left and right field were situated, you could have less mobile outfielders. And, you know, it was a park where you didn't see a lot of triples, certainly. Camden Yards doesn't have a lot either, but but even fewer in at the uh, at the old ballpark at Memorial Stadium. And, you know, it was a, a decent home run park, but it became a uh, pitching defense walks, three run homers was what you really need to do in Baltimore because it's hard to string together a lot of singles um, in that uh, in that ballpark. But anyway, the, the, the changes, what I'm getting at here is the changes have been almost or very overwhelmingly towards hitters parks okay we've we've kept some of the old good hitters parks not all of them but we but we've some of the ones like yankee stadiums have been completely changed from a a terrific pitchers park to a terrific hitters park uh with their move Uh, and others have have undergone you know different levels of of changes to being more hitting friendly including camden yards over memorial stadium which is one of the biggest differences Um, i don't think this has helped the teams that play there and I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. I'll, I'll chime in with mine after you go. Well, I, I think some of it is, you know, the, so the Orioles, we, as we know, moved back the left field wall. And you, you heard Elias come out and say that part of the reason that they did that is because they're hoping that it attracts pitchers to come here. Now, we're not in these rooms. We don't know what's being said. But according to what Mike Elias has said is he does, they have gotten feedback from pitchers and from agents that, 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 that that does bother them. And, you know, look, let's face it. Baseball is a game of numbers. Your numbers dictate how much money you can make and how much, you know, what your next contract is and stuff like that. So if they are artificially worse because of a smaller ballpark, ballpark, it's going to affect your salary. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's also why, you know, the Dodgers or some of these other teams, so many pitchers want to go to them because, you know, it's the reverse effect, you know, Petco and Safeco field and all that kind of stuff. So, these teams, you know, that you have to be very wary. You know, for years, I've always thought the Orioles should make sure that they're getting more ground ball pitchers or, you know, or stuff like that. The problem is, is the ground ball pitchers, especially nowadays, they're not the ones getting a lot of the strikeouts. Mm-hmm. So since they're not getting a lot of strikeouts, they're not seeing the big contract numbers. Goes back to the money again. And so less people are throwing sinkers. Less, you know, there, there's a lot less, you know, Zach Britton is almost a dinosaur at this point as a guy. Now, Britton also was that rare guy who could get all this, who would also get a lot of strikeouts. But those pitchers are just rare breeds. And at the end of the day, a lot of it comes back down to money. I mean, Marcus Stroman, who is a pitcher who is very good, and but he has very modest strikeout numbers. He gets a lot of ground balls. He's, he's had very good numbers across the board, but he just got his contract and he didn't get anywhere near what somebody like Robbie Ray got, for example. Mm-hmm. And, you know, cause Robbie Ray's going up there getting 10 and a half K's per nine innings. And, you know, he's putting up these big numbers and everybody gets all, you know, they look all fancy and everything else. So he's getting the big money and Stroman's not now. Sure. In theory, Robbie Ray has a less margin has a, has a larger margin for error because he's got the higher velocity there's less guys getting put on base. Obviously, a strikeout is better than a ball put in play. You know, the average, you know, you 
when you strike a guy out, they reach base like something like, you know, they don't reach base something like 99% and change of the time. And, but if you get a ball that's put in play, they're getting on base 70 to 73% of the time. So that's part of the, the thought process there. So let's give the guy the more money who get the strikeouts. And I get that. But, but if you have certain ballparks and a certain way that these parks are in terms of this, the, 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 the shorter fences and the power alleys aren't as deep and all that kind of stuff. It would, to me, it would lend the idea, the credibility that let's make let's get some more guys or throwing ground balls, but nobody wants to do it anymore because that's not where the money is. It's how, how Camden yards will affect free agency is interesting. You certainly don't want to have hitters around that you overpay after big home run years. And they still did it with Mark Trumbo. It was an absurd overpayment at, 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 at that time. And they, they, frankly, they ended up doing it with Chris Davis. And I don't think they could have projected as much of a decline because Chris Davis was a really good hitter before he completely was not. Uh, but it's, it, I'm, I'm still bothered by paying guys coming off inflated seasons in Camden Yards and and uh, what that really does to your overpaying your hitters and then also not having pitchers want to come here. I think for that reason alone, it probably would be enough. But if from a sabermetric point of view, the thing I would look at is I would want to reduce batters faced per game by my pitching staff, plain and simple. I want to reduce that number. And if I can reduce it by two or two and a half, um, I'll have a significant advantage. That might be too much, but 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 that would be a ton if it, if they could get that. I, I'm going to have a significant advantage over other teams in terms of keeping keeping my pitching staff healthy for the entire season, be able to have them get through and still have something left for a postseason. You know, and you hope to be there. Obviously, uh, I, I just I think that the teams and, and the Orioles certainly of my youth did a great job of being able to do that, despite the fact that Weaver was notorious for concentrating his innings in just a few pitchers who could really take it. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. If, if you want to face less batters, um, then number one, th- this is, this is, I mean, it's part of the reason why you're, you're seeing so many relievers being used. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because you know, one time through the order or, you know, getting three or four hitters out is a lot easier than going through an order three times. <clears throat> you're also, that's also why you want strikeouts. Um, because again, you know, if, if, if a guy is putting the ball in play, his chances of getting on base are way, way higher than if he strikes out. And I know that sounds simplistic, but it's true. Um, so if you're, if you're going to that, that thing, now the problem is where you run into the problem is the, it's the other side of this where the hitters, they're, they're going deeper in the counts. They're seeing more pitches, right? They're walking. They're doing all these types of things. So it it, it goes, it 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 kind of goes both ways. You know, you 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 can say, well, you know, I want the strikeout guy. And look, if I'm looking for a pitcher, that's that that's one of the number one things I want to know. Are you missing bats? Missing bats is like a huge huge thing, right? And if you're missing bats, then you're a guy that I want, and I want the guy who's missing bats more than the guy who's not. But I still think that the thing that gets totally overlooked way too often in pitchers right now is command. Right. Um, people will take velocity over command way too often. Command to me is still the number one thing. Um, and command is different than control. People put them together. They're not the same thing. And, you know, being able to spot your fastball wherever you want to is way, way more important and way, way, way more important than being able to throw it a hundred miles an hour, you know, whenever you want. 
And I think, you know, teams have got to, teams have got to, to, to build teams better. I mean, you mentioned the Chris Davis thing and the Mark Trumbo aspect and, and something that would equate to me, if you're looking at it from the football side, <clears throat> if you're, if you have a, a, you know, if you have Tom Brady or somebody like that, at quarterback, do you really need to spend tons of money on wide receivers? Like, is it really necessary? Not, I mean, it's helpful. I'm not, I'm not saying not to surround them with talent. I'm just saying, do you need to? Because he makes everybody better in everything that he does. You take almost any receiver that he's had and put him with a different quarterback, and they're not nearly the player. Right. It's, just, it's just the way it is. And the system and everything that they ran up in New England and whatnot, they, they just there, there's no reason to, to, to give the, the $20 million to Devontae Adams if you know you, your quarterback should be able to, to do that. It's the same type of thing. You should be able to get hitters that can hit 30 home runs in Camden Yards for a lot less money, like a Renato Yunez did a few years ago. You know, he came in, he hits a lot of homers. Now we're getting ready to pay Trey Mancini seven, eight million dollars to do the same thing that Renato Yunez can do. And he was doing it for, you know, for five hundred thousand right. dollars. So, that's a, you know, that's, that's a, the type of thing you gotta you gotta watch about those things. That's a that's a major problem in, in terms of valuing a DH only player like Mancini, or you could say he's a DH first baseman, but but really he's a he's an eight hundred OPS DH guy. And there just is not a lot of value in that. And he's a great story. He's a, you know, seems to be a very wonderful human being, but in terms of what his real value is, I just, I wouldn't be excited at all about re-signing him. And, and a lot of what he does uh, is going to be related to the ballpark. Even if it doesn't show up every year in his stats that way, it's going to generally show up in his stats that way. He's very much helped by the ballpark. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just a, it's not a contract I'd go out and be excited about signing, even though he's been a, you know, a solid player for an Oriole and, and, played cheerfully every day while the franchise has been terrible. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's just not an exciting player, but I, I, I'm getting back to the batters faced argument. The pitches per at batter, of course, are important too. very important. Um, I, I think there is a question about whether or not uh, I would prefer to have the missing bats. I want missing bats at important time. I really want lower total pitch count, which means I want to pitch to contact um, and I want to have a ballpark where it's okay to pitch to contact. So that's, that's part of uh, part of what we want. It's not okay in most major league ballparks right now to pitch to contact. And you're, so that means missing bats wins. Okay. Well, but, but it, they, it, it, I'm sorry. I was going to say it, it also depends on your defense behind you. Okay. So your generation, you grew up watching Jim Palmer, right? So <clears throat> Jim Palmer was a, he was a great pitcher, but there is a very, very legitimate argument that when you're looking over a span of, a, of you just take a 10 years, Palmer's best 10 years, and you compare him to Mucina, that Mucina was the better pitcher. Now, Palmer had all-world defense behind him. I mean, between Belanger and Brooks and Paul Blair and all those guys, you know, he had Bobby Gritches and all this type of stuff. He had all world defenses behind him and he pitched a contact. <clears throat> Palmer, his career strikeout rate was under six, you know, and his, you know, a lot of his numbers, like if you did like ERA plus and some of that stuff and you compare him to a Mucina, they're, they're all pretty similar, but then Mucina didn't have those defenses. He pitched in the tougher era. He had way more strikeouts. He had less walks. 
all those types of things. Well, the, and, the ERA plus <laughs> picks up on the era. It doesn't pick up. Yes, on the, it, yeah. it does a little bit. The only the only thing I hate about ERA plus is yes, it does. But but what you don't know is is if you take Mike Mussina and you transport him back into that era, and he puts up the same type of numbers, my guess is, is his ERA is going to be way better than what Palmer's was. Or at least I mean, his ERA. Palmer's like, ERA he, was I mean, Palmer had a 286. Yeah, it was 286, <laughs> if I remember correctly. That's correct. Um, but, 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 but again, but if you look at like his FIP numbers, they're way higher. So the problem with pitching to contact is you better have that elite defense behind you. And let's face it. Defense is under is is not valued as much as it used to be. Not saying that that's correct because it's not, but it's just not as valued. Guys do not spend time working on their defense like they do spending time on on their hitting, and because they don't get paid for their defense anymore. I mean, it, it's helpful, but <clears throat> the Ozzy Smiths of the world right now, you know, and Omar Vizquel. I mean, you 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 th- those types of players just. They, they're not really around. I mean, you get it like an Andrelton Simmons every once in a while. Um, but it's, it's very difficult to find those guys. And, you're, and it's very rare to see a team that's just loaded. Now, the, the Rays have done it some with, with, with having the, the, the excellent defensive team, which is part of the reason that the Rays are winning, because they find value in things that other people don't, sure. like speed and defense. Yeah. And so... If you can build a team where you're combining everything, sure. But generally speaking, if the ball is put in play, your chances of something bad happening to you are greatly increased versus if it's not put in play. So that's that's the general thought process. Um, you know, so but but I mean, but these at bats that go eight, nine, ten, twelve pitches. And your bat and your pitcher is getting out of there. The the Blake Snells of the world, for example, or you know, it's one of the worries of uh, DL Hall. <clears throat> mm-hmm. You know that type of thing. Where you know, are you going for the strikeout too much? Are you you know, are are you not utilizing everything? Are you not saying, hey, let me take off a couple miles an hour for for command? Are you not doing some of those things? And that's where it starts to hurt you. But it's it's, I don't know that there's one perfect formula. I mean, I, I think. I think the way the Rays play baseball is as close to correct as possible um, in terms of bat the ball, you know, play defense, use your speed, you know, pitching, you know, all that type of stuff. And they figured out ways to, 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 you know, do the, with the openers and stuff like that. Although their, their, their guys throw a lot more innings than people want to give them than people believe. Um, they're starters or, or the guy who comes in in the second inning and throws six innings or whatever. He's not a starter per se, but he is a starter. So they play as close to perfect baseball in a lot of ways as, you know, it's just, they just need to just have a little bit more talent to put themselves over the top. You mentioned one of the important things you mentioned there that I want to pick up on is that I think there's value when you, when your ballpark and your situation will allow you to find marginal value in players that other teams don't. And the key to that is building your ballpark in a way that is non, um, not the current trend of the, of the league. So if, if everybody's going for a hitter's park, well, you want a pitcher's park because they're, they're going to have sluggers because they're going to try and have their behemoths beat the other team's behemoths in these behemoth-friendly stadiums uh, most of the time. Then they're going to come to your ballpark and hopefully they have trouble. 
And that's why I like what they what they're doing at Camden Yards in terms of of changes in dimension. And in addition to, I think how it will allow them to coddle a young pitching staff a little easier to have fewer total batters faced uh, per game. But uh, it's incredible, you know, it, 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 to think it was only about ten years before I started watching baseball. My first year as a fan was nineteen seventy one. That Steve Galkowski without pitch counts really being used in the minor leagues at that time, how many pitches that guy must have thrown in some of the games he had. uh, All right. But we promised people a discussion about, about rules changes here. And let's, let's talk about one of the big ones, which is the shift. Now you and I had a brief discussion about this on our last pod. I thought it was really good, but let's, let's take a little more time to really discuss, you know, what, what it is the players are looking for, what it is the owners would like to do with it. What do you think the fans really want out of this? And, and is it reasonable is, is one of the questions I have. You know, it's funny. I, I think fans are split on this. I, the, 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 the true real baseball fans that I know, the hardcore people and all that are like really into it, like I am and, and whatnot, and really, you know, live and breathe with, with the sport. They, they're, they're very much against the shift, uh, against banning the shift. I mean, against changing. And yeah. yeah. And, but if you go on social media and stuff like that, there are a lot of people who think it's a great idea. So I think it's kind of split. I really do. Um, the, the the thing is, is I think the people who who are in favor of banning it, I don't think they actually know the statistics behind it. I don't think they actually I think they just assume that once you get two guys on each side of the bases, that all of a sudden we're going to have way more action. Now, I'm not going to sit there and say it's not possible because there is some data that could suggest that it could help with. With the the. Uh, with, with increasing the, the the quote unquote fun of the sport, getting more bases, getting more guys on the bases, more balls in play, there 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 is there is data that suggests that that could happen. <clears throat> the question is, is it worth it? Is it is it the data? Is the data worth doing it? Now, here's what I would guess. This is my assumption. It's going to be, as somebody who's against the shift, my guess is, <clears throat> I will never notice that they got rid of it. <clears throat> That, that, that's, that's what my, my the, the thing that I've always been against about getting rid of the shift is a shift. They like to define it as you're, you're putting guys on the, on, you know, too many guys on one side of the bases or stuff like that. And that's how they like to define it. But, but really a shift for me is taking a player and moving them out of the position that they would normally play in a quote unquote normal situation. Right. So Late in games, you are shifting your first and third baseman to the lines. In the outfield, you shift your players around depending on if the guy hits it more to right or left or whatever. Mm-hmm. Late in games, you shift your outfielders to go deeper and play basically on the warning no track doubles. or right before to avoid the, the doubles. So you're always moving guys around. Why is that any different? That that's the thing that I've never had uh, like a good explanation for. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> There's no evidence that suggests that 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 anything is better. Why don't you just say, okay, you have a center fielder, you have to stand right behind second base. You can't you can't shade towards left or right. Left field and right field, these are the spots you have to stand in. You can't shade over. Why are we not talking about that? Because yeah, hey, that could result in more bubbles and each, more stuff. Each position yeah, would I have mean, to stand in. That's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I, I don't understand why that isn't talked about more. I really don't because let's face it. <clears throat> so <clears throat> part of this thinking is so back in if, if by the way, if anybody wants to read about this and see some really a good article, 
the 538 wrote a really good article. Uh, it's dated January 17th of 2019. So it's not super current, but it's current. And one of the things that's discussed in the article, well, the article is about how the, the players are, are adjusting to the shift on their own in MLB. You don't have to do anything about it. But one of the things that the article talks about is, is in 2011, the ground ball rate in baseball was like about 53%. Um, last year, that's ground ball rate of batted balls of, of batted balls by teams. That was like okay, the, so the, I, the total. I'm sorry. Let's, let's get, ahead, I uh-huh. was, need to make sure what the denominator is because this is, this is what I do. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, you're taking strikeouts out of the equation, but you're not taking home runs out of the equation. So the home yes, runs this, is just, this is just like batted balls in play. In play. That, 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 that's what it is. In play, yeah. batted balls. Okay. So, <clears throat> so that number was 43% in, or, or roughly 43% or, I mean, I'm sorry, 53% in 2011. Mm-hmm. Last season in 20, um, in 2021, that number was – hold on here. Sorry. I'm, I'm looking up. Um, I want to make sure I'm That's telling okay. the right thing. Um, that number was down to 43.9%. That's just absurd That's, 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 that's according absurd to baseball – that's according to the Baseball Savant website. Um, and if you go through the years, they, they started their, – their numbers go from 2015 and, and it moves up. Um, so you can see the differences. You're also seeing over that time period, you're seeing uh, 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 like, in, like, for example, in 2021, the average la- launch angle was 12.6. In 2015, it was 10.9. <clears throat> Hard hit percentage in 2015 was 33.3%. Mm-hmm. And last season, it was 38.7%. So what uh-huh. you're seeing is <clears throat> you're seeing by because of the shift, Players are hitting more line drives and they're hitting more fly balls. That is how they are adjusting. We all say, well, just hit it to the other side, right? There's nobody standing over third base, bunt it down, hit it over there. And I agree. And I, and I do believe that players should be, should be sacrificing some power and doing that more often than they do. But they're the collective um, counter to the shift has been, we're just going to hit the ball over it. So, And and by the way, just so people are aware, the shift is is way more against lefties than it is against righties. Um, for example, last year the league average in shifts was thirty point nine percent of the time a batter was up there, um, they shifted to give people a, a difference to give people a thought. In twenty sixteen, it was thirteen point seven percent. That's how much it's increased in just five years, in just five so seasons. It was something the Rays really heralded back into the game. But the but the uh, uh, do you have a difference for left and right-handed batters of that thirty point nine? Yes. Um, so in twenty twenty one, there were uh, for right-handed hitters that went up to see the shift. There was, um, well, maybe not for who saw the shift. I think it's just right-handed batters in general. It's 107,500 plate appearances by right-handed hitters last year. Uh And they saw the shift 16.2% of the time. Okay. Lefties lefties was about 72,700 batters. So, you know, you're talking, what, 35,000 less. And they got it 52.5% of the time. (laughs) 
Okay, so, so more than three times as often, a left-handed batter yep. is shifted against than a right-handed batter. Yes, yes. Okay, now that, um, that fits the his, the history of the game well as well. I mean, it was this yes, shift came into play. It's, it's ancient. It's always been. Yes, it came into play in the 1920s against. It was the Williams Shift Act then too, but it was against Cy Williams. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, then it, it became more well-known as the Williams shift that was used against Ted Williams. By the way, a lot of people think that they were shifting against him in 1941. They really weren't. I, um, Jimmy Dyke started it, and he, he, he did a little bit in 1941 with it, but it was really in 46 when Lou Bedreau started doing it to, to the Red Sox on a regular basis, and those two teams were competitive and good at the same time, that, that it, was, uh, it became a more prevalent strategy. So uh, it, it, the history is ancient, and, and you know, it's – players like Ted Williams certainly could adapt to it. Um, but I, I don't know why it's not the responsibility of the offense to adapt to the shift that the, the general problem in baseball is underlies it is that we've allowed the, the hitters to get too far ahead in the game through whatever combination it is of current mound conditions, mound distance, all of the things. But if the hitters are having this much of an increased fly ball, line drive, and hard hit rate in particular. I mean, the hitters are too far ahead at this point. Changes need to be made to, to favor the pitcher. Yes. Um, <clears throat> you know, football football has gone that route, right, over the last, you know, we. this, of course, is why these sports are always so hard to compare in eras. And, you know, you can't play defense anymore in football the way you used to be able to. Um, I don't know that you'll ever see a, another 2000 Ravens team that literally can just win a Super Bowl with the dominant defense. I'm not sure that that'll ever happen again because the sport doesn't allow you to play defense in that manner anymore. And, <clears throat> but, but, but what did the NFL say? We have to improve this product, which means we have to have more scoring. And that's what gets people interested. Baseball has to think kind of the same way. And, you know, I, <clears throat> I'm not like, like, don't get me wrong. I love watching a one to nothing pitchers duel. I, I it, it doesn't bother me, but it bothers the average fan who is not as into the sport and doesn't like to analyze it and doesn't like to do that. Most fans don't want to do that. I mean, I know a lot of just casual baseball fans and they hate the sport right now. And <clears throat> I don't know. <clears throat> they have to bring something back to where you can make the game more exciting. Now there's only so much that you can do for that. Um, <clears throat> I mean, you mentioned the ballparks. I think every ballpark should consider moving their fences back. Um, I, I think it's, you know, you know, a lot of people are like, well, <clears throat> is this now going to make Camden yards a more of a pitcher's park? Now there have been a few seasons in Camden yards history where it was actually favored towards the pitcher, <clears throat> but it's not going to change the idea that it's a pitcher's park. Like that's one of the things Elias is trying to tell people. It's not, it's going to change the amount of home runs. That's what it'll change. But those, some of those home runs are going to become doubles and triples now. So it, it, it should bring a more exciting brand of baseball to the stadium. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a pitcher's park. It's just going to be a different type of hitters park now. Let's let's talk about what it means to have excitement in baseball. Because on the last podcast, one of the the, the posits I made was that a, a the walk to me adds a ton of drama to baseball. It's you know you, mm-hmm. you you get people on base, 
There's the fear of the walk, which also can lead to pitchers taking more chances, hitters you know, deciding if they want to take chances or not, which I think is generally speaking a good thing to have more, more risk uh, in those situations. Um, but uh, t- to me, it's, it's runners on base and building drama is what makes baseball exciting. The, the, the least exciting play in baseball in a lot of ways is a two-run homer with a runner on first a solo home run, even though it's an important part of the game, it's like it's, it's all of the excitement is shot in a, in a single pitch. And, and you, you, you kind of, you don't have the buildup to it anymore in baseball. And I, I, I really appreciated that. Uh, you know, as a kid growing up, it's one of the things that really attracted me and kept me interested in the sport was, was having that, that building drama of baseball. Well, why I, I think over the last decade, I think the Rays have been the most fun team to watch in baseball. And why is that? Because they've relied on speed. They've relied on defense. They, they rely on putting the balls in play. They, I mean, it's kind of like the Royals teams that, that, you know, that, that, uh, that went back to back world series. Right. I mean, they, they, they put the ball in play. They play defense. They, 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 these types of things, it's exciting. When you, if you go and you, you, you watch, you go onto a message board or you go on Twitter or something during like an Orioles game against the Rays over the years, all the time, what you always would hear from fans is God, the Rays, they just, they, they get on base. They, they wreak havoc on the bases with their speed. They, you know, they catch everything, all these types of things. And everybody's like, God, I wish my team played like that. But then if your team signed a guy that played like that, you'd probably be like, well, yeah, but he, you know, he didn't hit 30 home runs last year. So, you know, I'm not interested in that. The, the, the sport, you know, you, you, you mentioned Kauffman Stadium earlier. Kauffman Stadium used to be a triples haven back in the day. And that, I mean, it was it was known for that because it had the quirky angles and things like that. And these these that's exciting. The, the, the most exciting one of the most exciting plays in baseball is the triple. And partially it's because you never see him. I mean, I mean, you just don't. And and. And, you know, this, I mean, it's like another thing that's like a super, like a really exciting play in baseball is the relay throw, throwing out the guy at home plate. It, it's, it's a very basic thing, but, but because you don't see it that often, cause there's just, there's just such a cut down on so many plays and balls that are in play, it gets people excited and, and getting people more, getting everybody more involved in doing all facets of the game. Cause you're right. The home run, unless it's like late in the game or in the ninth inning to win the game or whatever else, the home run's not an exciting play. It's it's over in ten seconds. Then you're back to normal. You're back to square one. Right. And now what do we do? You know, it's so, so it's. Let's let's maybe talk about what what would be exciting to fix baseball. So I think we're both <laughs> saying the same thing here is that we'd like to see maybe a similar number of runs scored, but have the reliance on the home run be greatly reduced. Which, which means that, they, you know, if, instead of, I don't know what percentage of what, uh, runs last year were scored in home runs, but I, gave, I guarantee you, if you looked at that trend over the years, it's way up. Because the, the, the number of absolute home runs is up, but also other things about, the, you know, ball, it, the, the game becoming a, a three-outcome uh, walk-home-run-strikeout game is, is, is changing. Yeah, I can see you're looking it up right now as we go. But I think we can both agree on that. But, but let, let's maybe ask this in another sense. Should everything be up in the air to that end for baseball? In terms of me, should everything be on the table? I should say, in terms of rules changes that would promote that outcome. Um, I, I, I guess it just depends. I, I, 
for me in a lot of ways i am now i am for moving the pitcher's mound back um that that would be a what would be thought of i think as a drastic change mm-hmm. um there there so you know we talked about this before we came on and and the the the, the sport that i would compare it to a lot the thought process is golf so <clears throat> Back in the, you know, in the Jack Nicholas days and all that kind of stuff, courses were not really that long. Um, Tiger Woods comes into the sport. <laughs> he starts dominating. Uh, he's just, courses are just too small for him. He's, you know, every par five he's on into. And <clears throat> golf started to what they call, they, 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 they tiger proofed the courses. So they just started making them longer. They made it more difficult for him. And then subsequently the players behind him who started lifting weights, um, they started doing different things to make themselves be able to hit the ball further. And then of course, on top of that, the, the technology and the equipment, things like that have made it. So it's, you can hit the ball further, but if, if the PGA kept the courses at the same length as they were pre-Tiger, it wouldn't even be that interesting to watch. I mean, when you you see these golf tournaments nowadays where, you know, everybody's 10 under or better, part of it is because they're just so good. But another part of it is sometimes these courses, some of these courses are set up too easy. Mm -hmm. When you have the Masters – where, you know, the winning score is five or six under, or you have a, uh, a U.S. Open that's difficult and, and everybody's shooting under or over par, that's a, that's, that brings people in to a, a little bit more of excitement. So I, I, baseball, baseball needs to adapt. I mean, you know, talking about like the, 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 the mound, okay? So the mound has been the same distance from the mound to home plate since 1893. Right. And <clears throat> nowadays – Obviously, people are taller. They are throwing harder. So what does that mean? I, I, I saw a thing. So Chris Young, who was a six ten pitcher, uh, pitched in like the, the, the mid twenty in the twenty tens. He's now a GM or or in the front office. I think with San Diego or, or if he or if he's moved on, he might be in Texas or whatever. But they said that his stride, he was he was throwing the ball, he was releasing the ball five and a half feet in front of the mound. By the time he would release it, and there's a lot of guys, and maybe not quite that far, but they're releasing it a lot further towards home plate than they were in 1893. So they're throwing it harder, and the ball is coming out of their hands at say, you know, 56 feet seven inches or whatever. You you don't have the same reaction time. Effective so velocity if, is if, what they call that. Yeah, it's much higher today. If, if you move it back two feet, foot and a half, whatever, it's going to change things. But but that's adapting to. The players of today, I, I don't see, I don't see why adapting things to the players of today is a bad thing. Um, <clears throat> I know that the baseball purists are against anything like that, but I'm almost against anything that the baseball purists are against, just because those people annoy me. Right. Um, well. You know, everything, everything has like Bob Costas to me. Just I just can't stand listening to him when he when he gets on his rants about the DH and all this kind of stuff. And I, I just these you you the sport the sport has a lot of problems. It has a marketing problem. It has a the three outcome problem. It has a viewership problem, it has all these things. And enormous. Let me stop you for a second here because it has mm-hmm. an enormous revenue structure problem. 
that is, I, I, let me, let me ask a question because I think we're in agreement on a lot of these things. And I think we've frankly kind of beaten them to death in some ways about the, about the changes we'd make. I'm with you in terms of being anti-purist and I, you know, I've followed this game for a very long time, but I'm, I'm happy if they make whatever changes are necessary to save the sport, force people to pitch faster, you know, 91 foot bases, 61 foot mound, 59 foot mound with a different baseball, change the parks around, do whatever they need to do to fix the game because it, they're, they're really mm-hmm. at such a crossroads in terms of its popularity. But I wonder if it's not all window dressing at this point. They, they can make 10 rules changes to do exactly what we want in terms of reducing the, you know, reducing the reliance on the home runs but keeping runs the same, for example, which would mean more excitement, more on the bases, more of the things we both agree would be good for the sport. But I don't think they can really save the game from differences in in uh, parity that arise from the revenue structure of the sport, and it, and that that's where I'm just I I shake my head at what baseball has done. I mean, the Orioles clearly took it in the rear end, frankly, from the rest of the owners in terms of allowing a team to move back to Washington. Should have never occurred, and by doing it, they they really screwed the Orioles. I'm sure the Redskins feel the same way. The, the Washington football, whatever they're called today, uh, team feels the same way about uh, about the uh, Ravens moving in and, and and taking part of their market, quote unquote. But it really did hose the Orioles, and it was a uh, the kind of thing that uh, contraction would have been a lot nicer. Yeah, I I was I was working for the Orioles in the early 2000s when before the the Nets moved in and and. The Orioles, they were fighting tooth and nail. And, and you know, we, you know, we were seeing this, the, the numbers and how many people they were drawing from Montgomery County and Prince George's County and stuff like that. And, and it's not anywhere near, you know, people will say, well, just pull from York or, you know, PA or something like that. The numbers aren't even close. It's not, it's not a similar thing. I mean, it's just the amount of people, just pure people. It's just larger down there. And... <clears throat> It, I mean, everybody complained, well, the Orioles, you know, why, why do you care? It's like, because it's a significant, it's a significant, I mean, we, people need to remember that when the Orioles were good, the Orioles were drawing three, three and a half million fans. Yeah, they led the major leagues in attendance they, they, in the 90s. They can't, they can't draw that anymore. I mean, they've had the, re- first of all, they've reduced the size of the stadium, right? They've taken out some seats and that's partially because they know they can't sell, sell all of them. So let's have them a little bit, let's have a little bit less seats. Uh, cause that might imp- improve some of the quality of the seating, <laughs> but it's also the idea of, you know, like when they were winning in the mid two thousands, I think they might've gotten up to around two, six to seven in attendance. I don't think they can get any higher than that anymore. And that's, a, that's, that's a lot. And, and I still believe I, I am firmly believe I'm a firm believer that when, if Michael Elias sets this up, and the Orioles are a great franchise for the next 10 plus years. Baltimore is more of a baseball town than a football town. I've always believed that. It, I, it, I, I think if the Orioles are going at the level that, that they did years and years ago, I think this town is more on the Orioles than on the Ravens. And I don't mean that in any disrespect to the Ravens. I just think this is now maybe with the younger generation and more of the older generation who are the bigger baseball fans die, literally dying out, maybe that changes, but, but, but Baltimore is a huge baseball town. And even with that, I don't think they can get over three million. I don't think they can get the 3 million fans anymore. I, I just don't. And, and <clears throat> major league baseball definitely screwed them. And this whole dispute with Masson and everything else, you know, it, it's, 
what the Orioles negotiated was because they knew what was going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. It's supposed to be a permanent arrangement. That was the deal. You take half our market. Okay. But that TV revenue is ours. And and that was supposed to last forever. And now they they cry foul in in record time, frankly. I I guess they cried foul long before they got the agreement done, but, uh, but it still sucked. I mean, this is just a, uh, what I've said is that basically as soon as Washington moved in and had a franchise again, they entered yet another 30-year struggle for being the survivor in this single market. And, mm-hmm. you know, they've, they won that battle twice before. The Senators moved in 61 and the, uh, you know, to, to, to Texas and, they, and the, uh, the Senators moved again in 72 to, they moved in 72 to Texas and in, and in 61 to Minnesota. I'll get it right. Okay. So anyway, the, the, the point being that, that they, uh, you know, there's yet another battle royale that's been staged here. And Major League Baseball has no right to keep doing this to Baltimore. I mean, they just don't have any right to do it. I think, you know, Washington has proved itself not a baseball town in a lot of ways. And I know there's going to be all kinds of people on me for that one. But I think that's really, really the, the truth of the matter. No, and I mean, to me, if like I've always been a proponent of, of putting a third team in New York, like I think that would that that's helpful for some of this revenue disparities and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, it can it can certainly handle it. I mean, there have been three teams in New York before. I think I think you can do it. I think they put should it back do in it. Brooklyn. Would you put it in Brooklyn? Yeah, or wherever. Yeah, yeah. You could do Brooklyn. I mean, wherever, where, wherever makes sense, right? Uh, you know, even if it, even if it's not New York, and you got to put it in New Jersey, but it, you know, it's kind of like the Giants and the Jets, like they're in New Jersey, but they're really New York. You know, whatever it is that you have to do. But I, <clears throat> I've, I've, I've largely felt that I think you could probably put a third team in LA. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if you could do that. Although you can question how good the baseball fans are out there. Although they, they are selling lots of tickets out there, so maybe they're fine. But I, I think. I think there's other ways that you can do it and that they could have done it. And I don't know why, I don't know why there was this, this push to, to, to screw over the Orioles, but I mean, it definitely hurt them. I mean, there, there's no, now can they still spend enough money to put a contending team out there? Yes. Have the Orioles used that as a crutch a little too much? Yes. Because at the end of the day, the number one quality of, Building a pro sports franchise is you got to be smarter than the other is, is being smart. Right. You know, and let's face it since the 97 season, the Orioles haven't really been that smart. I mean, they were for that stretch of 2012 to 2016. They did some things, you know, they, they value defense in the bullpen before it was teams weren't really doing it as much at that point. Um, they, they found, they found value where other teams weren't finding value. And that's what that's being smart. But other than that stretch, this has not been a smart franchise. So, you know, they spent $170 million in 2017 to be a terrible team. Um, you know, same thing. They had a huge payroll in 2018. And, you know, they ended up trading Manny and a couple other guys. But they, they just – they didn't build the team properly. They didn't do things the right way. And that, that – the Orioles, the Orioles have to also – they have to understand their position in the sport, right? So – the, the, everybody wants to complain about the, the 2018 trade deadline. Okay. The 2018 trade deadline is not why the Orioles were pushed back. The Orioles were pushed back because they didn't trade Machado and Britain after 2016 when they were both MVP candidates, because the reason, the biggest reason that the Orioles were, were not the biggest, but one of the big reasons the Orioles were good from 2012 to 2016 is because the Yankees and Red Sox were down. And <clears throat> 
those teams were clearly trending up by the end of that run. And <clears throat> the Orioles and Buck Walter is it was Buck Walter and Angelos to me who were the, the two main thing. I don't know that Duquette would have felt the same way, but <clears throat> the Orioles decided <clears throat> we still can make a run. And it should have been obvious that they couldn't. And by holding on, if they had traded Machado and Britain after 2016, with the amount of talent they could have gotten back, this team could be could have been a contender a year or two ago. But they held on to him. They held on him way too long. They didn't get a whole lot for him at the deadline. They were rentals. It's it's you know pretty fairly typical that that's what's going to happen for a rental, and. <clears throat> You know, and it pushed it, and it and it and it knocked the franchise back several years. So, yeah. you know, they they, but that's part of them not being smart. It, it's not necessarily the revenue disparity. The revenue disparity is important. It gives you a lot more of a margin for error. There's no question about that. But give me, give me the thought process and the intelligence of the Rays. And you can have your two hundred million dollar payroll. Right. I mean, I, I think um, they've, they've at least I, gone in the right direction there <laughs> to get Elias to have him rebuilding an international program that had basically been left to nothing. They've they've hardly had any such signings. Uh, you know, they didn't have to worry about that. The, the Orioles, who were so dominant from the, almost the time they moved to Baltimore in '54 until uh, really about the mid '80s, in terms of winning the most games of any team during that stretch, and they didn't have to worry as much then about international signings being core to what they did. So they, they just, they realized things better and under Earl Weaver, mostly um, they figured things out better in terms of, of how to win baseball games that were, that were uh, very positive. Somebody asked me if the decisions of the early sixties really impacted the Orioles through the seventies. And I'm like, yes, is, is the truth. And so it wouldn't be true today. But, but, you know, the signings of play, players like Powell and Belanger and Blair and, you know, Brooks was already gone, but it, you know, was, was already there. But, um, you know, players of that ilk, Dave Johnson, who Merv Rettenmund, who, who brought a lot of on base percentage to the team uh, and really allowed that to be a, a central focus of the Orioles. That lasted for, for a long time from the time those decisions were initially made. Now, unfortunately, you don't get that anymore because you can't necessarily retain your free agents. So you have to be very careful. Something else I'm really not not crazy about in the game. We talked about in the last episode. I don't want to get into it again. But since you have less total retention on players with free agency, um, do you have to get more out of them sooner? Do you have to do you have to um, hold them back in the minor leagues for longer in order to do it? Anyway, I, I don't like that part of the game. I really don't. But I also I love the way the Orioles were able to build it originally. Obviously, and part of the reason obviously is just that they came out on top. Yeah, I mean, look, <clears throat> I don't care what sport it is. You're always better building through your draft and building through your development, right? I mean, you're not <clears> – I, I, we, we just saw the Rams win a Super Bowl in a very unconventional way in that they had a team loaded with guys at the top and then a bunch of nobodies for most of the roster. Nobodies meaning people who just weren't known, right? <clears throat> you have the Ravens. Part of the Ravens' problem has been their their insistent their insistence on giving middling contracts to middling players. You know, so let's say let's let's use a guy like Brandon Williams for example. Brandon Williams is an elite run stopper in a league that doesn't run the ball. So what are we going to do? We're going to give him ten million dollars a year. Well, 
but he doesn't he doesn't pressure the quarterback. You know, yes, he stops the run. I, I'm I'm not, but 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 he he's a one dimensional guy. You know, Nick Boyle, you gave him seven million dollars to block. You couldn't have found another tight end in the draft. Just just keep recycling players like that. Pro sports teams have got to get out of this idea of giving these middling guys these contracts for six, eight, ten, twelve million dollars. They don't help you. And the Rams just I, I just got to counter that for a doing that. The, the 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 Williams contract originally, I mean, he really was more or less the best player at his position, or very close to it, when he got that contract. And it, he never developed as a pass rusher beyond that. There obviously was hope that he would do more, and he never really developed on that. You still see, even to this day, how much the Ravens suffer without him in there as a as a run stuffer, and they have to try and replicate that somehow. But it did not turn out to be a good contract. They've had other contracts, and the Boyle contract account among this, the Pitta contract, um, that have not been good contracts because of injury. Those that certainly happened. But I mean, to blame the Ravens for that, generally speaking, I think would be kind of spurious. I think they've well, they've but been here's as good the, as any but, franchise. But but here's the thing. Let's say Boyle never gets hurt. Let's say he never gets hurt. Yeah. And he is still and he's the best blocking tight end in the league. No, no doubt. It's kind of like Patrick Ricard. You're the best fullback in the league. Great. But let's say instead of having Nick Boyle, they draft they got rid of him when he became a free agent and they drafted the best blocking tight end in the draft, or they had an Eric Tomlinson who does a adequate job blocking. Mm-hmm. Would they have been any worse off by taking that player? plus the $7 million cap hit that, that Boyle carries and give that to somebody else or whatever, or, or take that 7 million. And now, now, you know what we can do? We can actually go out and sign that elite guy because now we have this extra money. That's the thing. I, as a player versus player, sure. Boyle, Boyle can, is, is better than that draft pick, but can that draft pick gave you, give you 80 to 90% of the production for 20% of the cost? And if if they can, can you then take that money and put it towards something else? And that's the, you know, these teams, they've got to be smarter about that kind of stuff. Well, we, we, I don't, I don't think that's a fair assessment at all. Given the Ravens, when Boyle was great, the year, year after he signed his contract, I believe it might've been the first year of his contract. um, He was a truly great player and the Ravens had a historically great offense with Boyle making enormous contributions to that. And then he got hurt. And is it, is it really, uh, is it a bad contract? Because if you, the Ronnie Stanley contracts, by the way, may end up being the same thing. If he doesn't come back and play, and play healthy, then you'll say it's the peak contract. That well, but at least, but at least Stanley was an elite guy. He's an elite guy and an elite position that is very hard to find. So that's the one thing. It's kind of like Marlon Humphrey, right? Marlon Humphrey, elite guy. You gave him the money. That's great. It's it's there, there's an argument with with Ravens fans right now. Do you drop? Do you get rid of Marcus Peters for J.C. Jackson, right? With the thought process being that J.C. Jackson is has been playing at an elite level, and Marcus Peters is a good player who's capable of playing at an elite level. But you know, we saw we saw the difference in his production from what 20, 2019 to twenty twenty. He wasn't quite the same player. He was still good. But he wasn't quite the same player, so that's that's one of the things. Now, I don't. It depends on the numbers for me and what you can resign, you know, because you're not going to have Peters as a 15 million dollar cap hit. So that 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 matters with those numbers. But but just generally speaking, I think I think that ends up becoming the the, the question is, can you 
just have a team, you know, in baseball, they call it stars and scrubs. You know, do you have just elite players making a lot of money and then everybody else making nothing? Because those guys in the middle, your Giovanni Gallardo's, your Danny Baez's, your David Seguiz, all those types of players over the years, they're terrible. They're, they're, they're just not, they're not worth signing. And, and, and that's the case in all sports. You have so many of those guys making that money and then they're, you can't do anything. You, I mean, you need to, there's no doubt about it. You need to be very careful with mid-level contracts. I completely agree. And the Ravens are known for getting those guys that are right at the vet minimum at the right time. And basically that's been their free agency strategy is screw the early days of free agency. You're going to overpay for every one of those guys. Pick it up from the bin at the end, at the end of the time. I just think pointing to the Boyle contract specifically, I don't think it's a good example. I think it's actually a very bad example. The, the elite tight ends are making 10, 12, 14, 15 million. Andrews now and Kelsey and others. Um, you know, Boyle's making 40 to 50% of that. Um, he's paid for a different job. So, so it's, it's just, I, I don't believe it's a particularly good example. But I would agree with the general thought that you need to avoid middling contracts and, and paying a lot of guys 5 million. Sammy Watkins, I don't, I don't know how he could have been a good deal at 5 million. Uh, I, I, well, it was Willie Sneed. Same same type of money, right? Like all those guys, yes. like they they he was at like those around five million, if I remember correctly. And you know, it's like people fans are like, you know, should we bring back Ricard? No, if it nobody nobody uses a, a fullback, you you can go get a fullback. You know, it's right. it's kind of like the thing with Boyle. Not a lot of teams use blocking tight ends the way the Ravens use them, so you can find them. You know, because because they're, they're not in high demand. But you know what you can't find? You can't find elite corners. You can't find elite tackles. You can't yeah. find you know. You know, I mean, you, you, you can't find elite defensive, you know, D linemen that can, you know, that can get pressure up the middle. You know, you, you, you know, or, or, you know, you can't find those guys. I mean, after watching the combine this weekend, maybe there's a bunch coming into the league. I don't know. But, right. but, but, you know, those guys you can't find. And, you know, you, there, there, there's that fine line. And, and, you know, bringing it back to baseball, the, the Orioles have, you know, this whole thing with Carlos Correa, right? It's it's probably not true, okay? And you can argue how elite Carlos Correa is, or at least will be in three, four, five years. But give me one Carlos Correa over four David Seguiz. But in the past, the Orioles of the years would rather have four David Seguiz than one Carlos Correa. They don't want that guy making $30, $35 million a year, but they will pay four mediocre players $8 million a year and won't, won't bat an eye at it. It doesn't make sense. It's not. It's just not logical. You should be able to have Carlos Correa and four Renato Nunez's that are doing the same thing as four David Seguiz are. I mean, you should be able to do stuff like that or, you know, whatever. I mean, you know, instead of signing, you know, three or four Danny Baez's, you should be able to get three guys who are starters in the minors but aren't starters in the majors and give you, you know, a four ERA in the major leagues. You should be able to develop that player. And, you know – the, the the payroll disparity stuff is a problem, but but if you notice, like a team like the Yankees, now the Yankees are in the are in the playoffs every year, and a lot of that has to do with the money they're spending. There's there's no question about that. Mm-hmm. But they're not winning in the playoffs. Now a lot of that is luck. Don't get me wrong. Playoffs are are, are, are largely a, a, a big thing about luck. Um, <clears throat> but ever since they've tried to buy a title, they they they've won. What since Messina, they've won one. And, you know, because they, they, they don't develop well anymore. They, and when they do develop guys, they trade them, you know, Cashman has wanted to hold on to guys, but then ownership and fans and, you know, all the media and everything else, it's like, he gets pushed to making moves and it doesn't, it's not helpful. 
Um, you know, and, you know, so they've got to, you know, these teams, you know, thankfully they, they think that way because the scary, the scary team in baseball is not the Yankees, it's the Dodgers. The, the, the Dodgers are the team because they have a rookie of the year candidate almost every year and they spend right. a ton of money. So they, right. they, know how to they combine. Players. Yeah, they combine the, the, the top young talent that's making no money with the elite guys. All right. We got to, We got to call it here. Uh, but I really appreciate you joining me again, Rob. It's been a great discussion, of course. And we, we promised you a little bit of discussion about the shift would be mixed in here. And I think we got to that a, 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 more, a lot of more general uh, what's wrong with baseball stuff. Uh, Rob, tell people where they can find your work. Uh, I uh, do uh, some blog writing for the Orioles on Utah Street Report and for the Ravens on Russell Street Report. All right. Outstanding. Other folks out there, if you'd like to be on an, on an episode of uh, Film Study, a short, uh, please hit me up. DMs are open on Twitter. Love to hear from you. And uh, any kind of topic is good, but the narrower, the better. So we can go deep in about 20 to 25 minutes. Uh, but if you've got a great topic like uh, Rob did today, this is worth a, a longer discussion and happy to have you. Rob, thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. We'll talk to you next time on Film Study. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.